Just what is a Messianic congregation? Have you ever been to one? What can we learn from our brothers and sisters who do worship at a Messianic fellowship? This week on The Land and the Book, we're going to meet the congregational leader of a Messianic church. Plus, Charlie Dyer's devotional takes a look at fake news back in Bible times. Intrigued? Don't miss The Land and the Book, which starts right now. We'll begin with a look at current events after this quick thought. Hey, what's the next event on God's prophetic timeline? Why is it important and what does it mean for you? Well, our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses this issue. The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort, is an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more there about Life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. That's Dr. Charlie Dyer, host of The Land and the Book, a lifetime student of the Holy Land. I'm John Geiger. We're looking at current events in this opening segment. Charlie, no secret that the past two weeks have seen a number of attacks against Israel from individual terrorist incidents to rockets being fired from Lebanon, Syria, and the Gaza Strip. What's the reason for the sudden increase in violence? And I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, is it safe right now for folks to even travel to Israel? Well, the sudden uptick in violence is the result of two major factors. The first is the confluence of Jewish and Muslim holidays. Ramadan always seems to bring with it a rise in violence on the part of Muslim extremists. Unrest at the Temple Mount, along with Israel's response, generated further unrest elsewhere in the country. It provided an excuse and an opportunity for individuals to defend the cause of Islam by looking for ways to attack Israelis. This year, the Jewish festival of Passover came right in the middle of Ramadan. Several Jewish extremists tried to smuggle lambs up onto the Temple Mount to sacrifice them. Thankfully, they were caught by police before they could carry out their plan. But even the publishing of those attempts helped inflame tensions between the two groups. Uh, The second major cause for the uptick in violence is the ongoing crisis within Israel itself over judicial reform. Muslims within Israel, along with Muslim countries around Israel, see in these reports proof that Israel is disintegrating from within. A strong united Israel serves as a deterrent to attacks, but a fractured, weak Israel invites attacks from those who believe they can help bring down the Jewish state. It's no accident that the heads of Hamas and Hezbollah met together last Sunday to coordinate their resistance efforts. That same day, Iranian President Raisi met with Syrian President Assad to talk about working together against Israel. Now, Israel's internal struggles ought to, at least temporarily, take a back seat so the country can grapple with the increase in terrorism. But sadly, the divisions are still present and on display, encouraging Israel's enemies to continue looking for ways to attack. Now, in terms of whether or not it's safe to travel to Israel, uh, let me answer this way, John. In just over a month, the two of us and our wives are heading to Israel with a group, and I have no hesitation at all about going. In less than a week, the month of Ramadan ends, and that should help reduce tensions. Israel has responded militarily to the attacks from Lebanon, Syria, and the Gaza Strip. And in spite of their rhetoric, neither Hamas, nor Hezbollah, nor Syria, nor Iran are prepared to engage in full-on conflict with Israel right now. So hopefully, attacks from those areas will decline. 
Uh, Israel has also beefed up its security presence in Israel proper and in the West Bank, which should help deter the violence. Now, in spite of what we see on the news, tourists, especially tour groups in Israel, remain remarkably safe. Tourist dollars help both Palestinians and Israelis, and neither side wants to harm their own economy. Uh, There are likely some places where tourism will be restricted, at least until everything is calmed down, but the vast majority of sites visited by tour groups will remain open and accessible and safe. That's good news. Well, there appears to be a temporary lull in the conflict over judicial reform within Israel. Does this signal a possible solution to the conflict, or is it just kind of more conflict over the horizon? Could this actually bring down the current government as well? Yeah, sadly, the the lull appears to be just temporary. While the sides are meeting to try to come to some sort of compromise, uh, the preliminary reports are that neither side is optimistic an agreement can be reached, though that is the hope. Uh, The ultimate issue is whether or not the legislative branch should have a dominant role in determining the appointment of judges. Uh, Looking at the situation from the viewpoint of our own Constitution, uh, we see the legislative approval of judges as being a vital part of the system of checks and balances in our government. But in Israel, the opposition view that proposal as an opportunity for a conservative Knesset to appoint judges who will turn the country religiously conservative. Here's the kind of question. Should, Should the airport be closed on Saturday? Should all cars and buses stop running? Uh, Should Messianic Jews be arrested and charged for sharing the gospel? Uh, Those are the kind of fears driving the opposition. Uh, The other factor behind it all is the distrust the opposition has for Prime Minister Netanyahu. They're reluctant to seek any sort of compromise because they believe it could help Netanyahu remain in office. In fact, they want to bring down the present government, though they don't have the votes to do it. So they really hope the coalition is just going to collapse from within. Two of the coalition parties have threatened to jump ship if Netanyahu doesn't continue to push for their political and religious agenda. Uh, They're so zealous in achieving their goals that they seem incapable of compromise, and that certainly does have the potential of bringing the coalition down if they follow through on their threats. Uh, Right now, the only things holding the coalition together are the external and internal threats facing Israel. But if the terrorism situation calms down, it's unclear whether the coalition partners will be able to move forward without causing the government to collapse. If you're just joining us, that's Dr. Charlie Dyer, Middle East Authority. I'm John Geiger, and we're looking at current events from the week in the Middle East. Was the author of the book of Revelation influenced by ancient curse tablets? Well, that's the opinion of a professor of theology who sees parallels between Revelation and ancient texts written to curse one's enemies. Just how serious is his proposal, Charlie? John, this is a case of scholarship run amok. Uh, It fails on so many levels, it's actually hard to know where to start. Now, this professor begins by denying that the Apostle John is even the writer of Revelation, even though one of the earliest church fathers, Irenaeus, said the Apostle John wrote the book. And as anyone who's studied Greek knows, the writing style matches John's other writings. Now, any supposed parallels to other cursed texts are superficial at best. For example, one of the recently discovered cursed texts that we've actually talked about on the program uh, says, cursed, 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 cursed by the God Yahweh, you will die cursed, cursed you will die, cursed by Yahweh, cursed, cursed, cursed. That's obvious that's a cursed text. It uses the word cursed 10 times in that short statement. Now, in contrast, the word cursed is only used one time in the entire book of Revelation, and it's in the very last chapter. There will no longer be any curse, it says. And that's referring to the curse placed on humanity and the earth at the time of the fall. Now, if someone wants to find parallels to the book of Revelation, 
They don't need to go to cursed tablets. They only need to look at the book of Daniel or the Olivet Discourse of Jesus in Matthew 24. John provided additional information on the future found in those two earlier prophecies. In fact, five separate times in the book of Revelation, it describes itself as a book of prophecy. The book does describe future judgments, but it does so because God has announced a time when he'll judge those who've rebelled against him. Uh, The curse on humanity began in Genesis 3. Revelation simply describes how God's program will end. Now, I find it fascinating, John, that several new works have come out recently that seek to explain why the book of Revelation wasn't intended to do the very thing it's claiming to be doing. Uh, In cases like that, it's always best to stick to the original words of the author, especially when Jesus happens to be the ultimate author of the book. (laughs) Well, Bend It Like Beckham was a movie about soccer or football, as some would uh, demand we say. But Bend It Technologies focuses on a goal that's far more important. Tell us about this technology from Amazing Israel. Yeah, in this case, what's being bent is a steerable microcatheter that can be threaded by a surgeon into the human brain to remove life-threatening clots or to seal aneurysms to prevent strokes. Catheters have been used for years to unblock blood vessels in the heart, but the maze of tangled, twisting, subdividing blood vessels in the brain have posed unique challenges. The number of stroke and aneurysm cases continues to rise, and the cost to care for survivors is one of the largest ongoing challenges to affordable medical coverage. And that's where Bendit Technologies in Patak Tikva comes into play. The company developed a microcatheter with a controllable tip that bends and twists where it needs to go, allowing the surgeon to guide the catheter through the maze of vessels to the appropriate target. Bendit is currently employing the FDA-approved device at five hospitals in the United States, giving surgeons there an opportunity to test it in real-life situations. Bendit describes itself as a research and development company, so they anticipate their device will eventually be purchased by a larger medical device manufacturer. Someone facing an inoperable brain aneurysm or a blocked blood vessel will hopefully soon be able to have a surgeon bend it like Beckham, skillfully threading a bendit microcatheter to just the right spot in the brain to resolve the issue. Uh, John, this is the kind of innovation we've come to expect from Amazing Israel. You know, if you're enjoying this broadcast slash podcast, I bet you have a friend who would as well. Well, do them and us a favor. Let them know how they can listen to the land and the book. Thanks for doing that. Coming up, our conversation about Messianic congregations. You ever been to one? What are they? And why should you even care? We'll talk about it next on The Land and the Book. Just what is a Messianic congregation? Have you ever been to one? What can we learn from our brothers and sisters who do worship at a Messianic fellowship? Coming up, we'll meet the congregational leader of a Messianic church. From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and you know, we really get to meet a whole lot of very cool people in this second segment of our broadcast. How about a quick idea right now, though, on reaching out to the very cool Jewish neighbors and relatives, co-workers and friends where you live? Well, it wasn't that long ago, and I received this response from a Jewish listener. I'm Jewish. Why don't you just leave us alone? And I'm not quite sure how to reply. And uh, Levi Hazen is with Life in Messiah. How should we reply when someone says something like that to us? Well, John, when someone makes this statement, they're really saying, hey, everyone's opinion is valid. There's no objective truth. Just let me be. 
you keep trying to turn us into Gentiles. Let us be Jewish. The reality is, despite opposition to the gospel message, and no matter what form it comes, we must continue to persist in sharing with the lost world, especially the Jewish people. So if my Jewish friend asks this kind of question, and I have the opportunity to gently respond, I may ask something like, if I had the cure for a disease that someone was suffering from, do you want me to keep that cure to myself or share it? Or I might simply state, since you're Jewish, this message about the Jewish Messiah is especially for you. Mm. And John, I believe in sharing Scripture with the lost whenever there's an appropriate opportunity. As a Gentile, one verse I like to share with my unsaved Jewish friends is Romans 11.11, which states, Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. And what I love is that initial response of yours. No matter what we say, let's respond gently, right? That's right. Gently. Levi Hazel with Life in Messiah. Shortly after getting married, Amor Olson and his wife Paige moved to New York City as missionaries with Jews for Jesus, with whom they served for over 22 years. In 2005, while working at the London branch, Amor earned a B.A. with honors in biblical and intercultural studies at All Nations Christian College. The Olsons were next stationed at the Chicago branch of Jews for Jesus, where Amor was asked to take up leadership. In 2011, he and his family moved back to New York City to help lead the branch there. But 2022 brought a new call to serve the Olive Tree Congregation of Suburban Chicago as their next pastor. Well, we were so intrigued, we decided we just had to meet with Amor, so we packed up our recording gear, and and here we are at Olive Tree Congregation outside of our own studios. Welcome to the land of the book, Amor. Shalom, John. What a great opportunity to be with you. Well, this is interesting when I look at your bio. A Jewish mother a Scandinavian father, you were definitely not born into a Christian home. So describe your spiritual journey. Well, it started when my grandparents on my mother's side moved to New York from Eastern Europe. And so if you've seen Fiddler on the Roof, then you've seen where my grandparents lived independently. They came with their families to New York City, living on the Lower East Side of Manhattan uh, in a very Jewish community, very kosher. Uh, They got married. They moved to the suburbs of Brooklyn, New York, what I call the old country. And that's where my mother grew up in a very traditional home, going to synagogue, going to Hebrew school. But in a time when she was more of a free-thinking young woman, I mean, as a little girl, she had uh, a heart to understand who was God. But by the time she was a teenager, she thought, no, this isn't, none of this is important to me. Uh, my tradition, belief in God, whatever, she left it all behind. She went as far away from New York as she could to go to graduate school, which was Minnesota at the time. And uh, uh, there she met my father, and he was someone who— grew up in a very nominal Christian home. And so while he had a love for the Bible, he, he didn't talk about it much. Uh, he was an artist. Uh, they, they were was part of the bohemian circle, and uh, they were they're friends with people like Bob Dylan and, and other folk artists. And, uh, you know, growing up, our household, we didn't grow, go to church or to synagogue. After a while, we did celebrate some of our Jewish traditions like Hanukkah, but we also had a Christmas tree in the same corner of the house, and we had Easter and Passover so we, we didn't really understand what was our heritage. Kind of a hodgepodge, it seems Yeah, like. so a little of everything, which isn't bad. If you yeah. don't like holidays, you get twice as many <laughs> that way. But it took a while to, uh, to, to understand just what our culture was. Hmm. Eventually, there was a pastor in Minnesota that uh, drew you to him. Uh, you, you certainly didn't believe at the time. And uh, just talk about that, that whole journey. Sure. Well, 
when I went off to college, it was, it was to Philadelphia, so far from Minnesota. And, but it was back on the East Coast, and I was going to art school. I was following my father's footsteps. I uh, felt called as an artist, really. And as a young man, I believed God had a purpose in my life. Uh, I thought it was to be an artist, and uh, so that's what I pursued. But I was on the East Coast close to my Jewish family in New York and New Jersey, so I found myself visiting them on Jewish holidays, on other traditional American holidays, but also going to synagogue with them. And suddenly I had this hunger to understand my Jewishness better, uh, especially when they were reading Hebrew in the synagogue and I didn't have a clue what was being spoken. So I decided I would teach myself Hebrew as I was going to art school, uh, visit synagogues, and just become more connected with my Jewish people. Um, But at that time I returned to Minnesota where I found that my father was also having a bit of a spiritual journey as he was plugging into different Christian TV programs. He didn't go to church yet, but he wanted to, to fill something spiritually in his life. One of these television shows was a local pastor who was also a Jewish believer in Jesus. Now, that caught my attention. Uh, and especially as he went through the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh, you know, uh, the, the Torah, the Ketuvim, the Nevi'im, that means the, the law and the prophets and the writings of the Old Testament. Uh, but he, and he looked at how they all were really pointing to the coming of the Messiah. And then he would open what he called the Brit Chadashah, that means the New Covenant scriptures, and showed how thoroughly Jewish it was that all these writers of the New Covenant were Jewish believers in Jesus, that the message was the promise of the prophets has come to pass, that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And as I watched these programs, I realized, wait a minute, I'm Jewish, and Jesus is Jewish, and if he's really the Messiah, then it seems like the most Jewish thing I could ever do is to believe in Jesus. Uh, that is not what traditional Jewish people would, would right, say, right, right. Uh, which I was uh, soon to find out. But, but my dad and I began to visit there, and soon the rest of my siblings. And, and, and there we really studied the scriptures, and, and I took a big step because at this point in my life, um, I had never been baptized. In fact, my father hadn't either, but the, the pastor was encouraging us to take a step of faith in baptism and that's when I, I argued a little bit with him. I said, well, wait a minute. Uh, from what I've heard, you're not saved by what you do, right? You're saved by your faith. And so therefore, I'd rather just opt out of that. And he said, well, it's true. You are saved by your faith. So how's your faith? And, and that question just cut me straight to the heart because I had some shortcomings in my understanding of who Jesus was. Uh, and when I confessed that to him, he said, well, that's, those are important questions. In fact, the biggest question I had was, could Jesus really be God? Which is what my Christian friends had been telling me, what the Bible seemed to say. And I I just couldn't wrap my mind around that. Now, many Jewish people struggle with that question because in the Jewish tradition, our, our foundational prayer is called the Shema, which I'm sure you've heard. But it goes like this, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that's sort of been a shield, a defense against Christianity for so many centuries because we believe that God is three in one, and that seems confusing. <laughs> How could God be three if he's one? And for me, it just was a matter of mathematics. I couldn't put three and one together. Uh, and so this pastor challenged me, and he said, this is a big issue if it's true because God would really want you to know the answer to this. And by the same token, if you're honest, if it wasn't true, he would want you to know that. So why don't you really ask God, come to God and ask him to show you, is this true? And it seems so easy of a, of a solution, but I hadn't thought of that before. I thought I figured it out on my own. 
But when I, I sought God in prayer with this pastor, I said, God, show me if this is true. And part B to that prayer was, if it is true, then what do I do about it? And it was the, the commitment to say, God, I will follow you if this is what you reveal. The beautiful thing is that it, it wasn't like I walked out of the door and the heavens opened and the angels all declared who Jesus was. It was just that God turned a switch, it seemed like, in that moment in my heart. I think when I was willing to let God reveal the truth, uh, he revealed that in my heart. Today on The Land of the Book, we're talking with Amer Olson, congregational leader at Olive Tree, a messianic congregation based in suburban Chicago. Your website says that you guys celebrate the Jewishness of Jesus, the scriptures, and God's plan in history. Uh, what does that look like? You know, when, when we come here on a Saturday, it's not a Sunday, and that would be tip number one. What do we see, maybe visually even or artistically, that would be different than the church that we might be used to? When you walk into the Olive Tree congregation, you'll enter a sanctuary where at the far end, there's a big cabinet at the back of the room. Yes. Uh, it's, it's what's called an Ark or a Keter Torah. It's a cabinet that contains the Torah scroll. Uh, above, as you look up to the ceiling, you see this lamp hanging down, which is always lit. Uh, in the synagogue, it's called the Ner Tamid, the eternal light. Uh, so we have some of these elements in our space. It just so happens we have, um, we're blessed with a very beautiful congregational space uh, that wasn't built as a synagogue, but you'll see the beauty of the space, which helps us to enter into that service with God. But also the service itself is structured a little bit like a synagogue service. There's, we open with what's called the barhu. That means uh, bless the Lord who is to be blessed. It's an opening prayer. Uh, we will say the Shema, the, the, the prayer that God is one. Uh, I want to say that in every messianic synagogue, you won't find the same experience. Some look a lot more like a traditional synagogue. Some might look a little bit more like a, sh- a church that you're used to attending. Uh, there's about as many different varieties of messianic worship as there is of Christian worship. Uh, but in our congregation, once a month, we have what we call a Torah service. So we take the Torah scroll out of the, the ark, we bring it out, we unroll it. This is very visually impressive. I've been here to okay. see it. Yes, and so uh, there's there's much focus on the Torah itself yes. because it's God's gift. It's his word. But we want to have a healthy view of the Torah, and that can be a, a challenging uh, way to approach Messianic Judaism or the, being Messianic is, is what is our view of, of the Torah? How do we keep that? If we're Jewish by heritage, but we believe in Jesus the Messiah, mm-hmm. uh, do we keep the Torah the traditional Jewish way or do we look at it in a new way? And so at the Olive Tree Congregation, we look at it as God's word revealed to us, which reveals his standard, uh, his, his law, which is perfect, but it also reveals our our sinfulness, our shortcomings, our inability to keep the law. It points us to a redeemer. It points us to our need for a redeemer, but also throughout the Torah, we see these images pointing us to the Messiah, the redeemer himself. Uh, And in him, in Yeshua, we believe he fulfills the Torah and we look to the Torah as, as something that points us to him. In fact, the rest of the the Jewish calendar, uh, as we celebrate Passover or Pesach, as we celebrate in the fall, uh, Sukkot, I mean, there's all the holidays in between. Uh, Each one of these Jewish festivals, I've come to realize, not only as we see in the New Testament, did Yeshua, did Jesus observe himself, Mm -hmm. but he, in those festivals, he points to how he fulfills them. Uh, He is the, the reason for all of those 
those Jewish holidays. All right, I got to ask one last question, and uh, this may be tough to answer. Assuming, assuming uh, the person listening to me uh, lives in range of a Messianic congregation, uh, they're believers, they have a Jewish friend that they've been witnessing to, are they better off taking them to the Messianic congregation, or are they better off taking them to their own church? Messianic congregations exist both to grow up and disciple and edify believers, so they could be Jewish believers or non-Jewish believers who also want to celebrate Jesus in that Jewish way, but they also exist as a witness to the Jewish community that you can be Jewish and believe in Jesus. We've been told all of our lives as Jewish people that you can't be Jewish and believe in Jesus. That's what my grandparents told my mother. That's what my mother thought. Uh, And yet it seems to me the most natural thing if Jesus really is the Messiah. So it's to show that it's worth considering. So yes, if you have a Jewish person who's a friend or coworker uh, who is open and you're having a conversation about could Jesus really be the Messiah, I would encourage you to invite them if you can uh, attend a Messianic congregation or a Messianic event like the Feast of Purim or uh, Pesach, a Seder, or a Shavuot or any one of those festivals that might be a good entry point or certainly one of the weekly services. But I also just want to say that you don't have to go to a Messianic congregation. And in fact, the vast majority of Jewish people who've come to believe in Jesus have not done so in Messianic congregations, but because they have caring Christian friends who've been faithfully praying for them and lovingly witnessing to them and giving an opportunity for them to come and just see Jesus real in their lives, in their homes, but also in their own churches. Well, we have, I feel like, just scratched the surface of stuff. We have got to get together again. Hope you'll join us again. Oh, I'd love to. That's Amer Olson, congregational leader at Olive Tree Congregation in suburban Chicago. I'm John Geiger saying, don't go away. Charlie Dyer's coming back with a look at a whole bunch of questions that have come in. I love these questions. Maybe one of them is yours. That's all next here on The Land and the Book. Questions and Answers. That's our segment next here on The Land and the Book. Welcome back. I'm John Geiger. If you joined us midstream, our host is Charlie Dyer. He's traveled to the Holy Land more than 100 times, been a pastor. He's been an administrator for Moody Bible Institute and a whole lot more. This is a man that loves the Word and loves to get your questions. Before we get to those, here's one for you. What's the next event on God's prophetic timeline? Why is it important and what does it mean for you? Uh, our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses that very issue. The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort, is an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and that will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more about Life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. Thank you, Charlie. And let's start with our first question from Clarence. He's wondering about the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, referenced in Revelation 21:14. Any thoughts on this? Well, I think Clarence really wants to know, you know, is the 12th apostle, since Judas was left out, is it Matthias or is it Paul? Mm -hmm. And since the apostles chose Matthias in the book of Acts, I don't think they made a mistake when they chose Matthias, since it's presented there in a straightforward way as something God's hand was in. So the answer I I tend to view is, 
that all 12 apostles originally were chosen as they related to God's plan for Israel. You know, Jesus said the 12 would sit on 12 thrones to judge the 12 tribes of Israel, and that was in Matthew 19:28. Now, in Romans 11:13, Paul describes himself as an apostle to the Gentiles. So perhaps Matthias did replace Judas and will be one of the 12 judging Israel while Paul was given a unique place as the gospel went out to the nations through the church. A question from Doug. In Leviticus 2, did the priests eat the grain offering, even though it contained incense as an ingredient? Was it such a small amount of frankincense that it was edible, or does it have some nutritional benefit? Yeah, and actually, I think the best answer is found in verse 2 of that passage, because it says the incense was only added to the portion offered to the Lord. It says that the priest will take a handful of the flour and oil together with all the incense and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar. So the part they ate would have been incense-free. Here's Jeff's question. He says, World War I and World War II began small, then rapidly escalated. I see the same escalation in the Ukraine war and expect it to turn into a full nuclear war soon. Would that lead to Armageddon? I believe Christians will be taken out of the world before Armageddon, Jeff says. And if that's the case, we could be weeks or at the most a few months until the church is taken out of this world. Also, it appears God is withdrawing his hand of protection from the U.S. Would I be correct in believing that appears to make it more likely Armageddon is coming up fast? Thanks for any clarification. Yeah, and I need to answer this a couple ways. First, I believe by using Armageddon there, you're referring to either the tribulation period or the final battle before Christ returns. And that's how it's popularly used, but uh, that's not actually how it's used in the Bible. Uh, In the Bible, in Revelation 16, Armageddon is the final gathering of nations at the end of the tribulation that ultimately culminates in a battle at Jerusalem, which is where Christ returns. So I actually prefer using Armageddon as the campaign of Armageddon rather than a battle. Now, in terms of Russia, I believe they are part of a group of nations that are mentioned in a battle described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Uh, That's an attack by Russia, uh, along with Turkey and Iran and some other countries against Israel that's going to be stopped by God. And that battle likely takes place at the beginning of the tribulation period. And events today with Russia and Iran and Turkey do suggest they're drawing closer. But I believe that battle is after the rapture, so it's at least a little bit in the future. And that leads to the rapture itself. I'm reminded that no one knows the day or the hour for the unfolding of end-time events. That makes me very reluctant to set dates. I know some believed in the rise of Nazi Germany as as, uh, setting the stage back in the 1930s and early 1940s, but as horrible as World War II was, it wasn't the end. So I find myself paying great attention to events in, in Russia and Iran and Turkey and Israel. They're the key areas for fulfillment in Ezekiel 38, 39, and in the start of the tribulation. But I'm hesitant to say the rapture is just days, weeks, or even months away. We simply don't know, which is why we're told to always be ready. And in terms of the United States, I think we need to rely on God's grace right now. I think God has spared us in part because we've been supportive of Israel. If we turn away from Israel, I think all we can expect at that point is God's judgment. That's Dr. Charlie Dyer. This is The Land in the Book. I'm John Geiger. We're looking at questions that have come in via email. You can get yours to Charlie when you write The Land and the Book at moody.edu. Todd asks, why was Elihu not rebuked by God along with Job's other three friends? Yeah, and I believe Elihu wasn't rebuked by God because he really didn't say anything wrong or incorrect about Job or about God. He's introduced in chapter 32, and when he is, it says he was very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God, and he was also angry with the three friends because they found no way to rebuke Job and yet had condemned him. 
Elihu quotes Job's complaint about God not seeming to be just, and then says, in this you're not right, for God is greater than man. He's telling Job to focus on the greatness and the grandeur of God, but he also condemns the three friends. He says, I gave you my full attention, but not one of you has proved Job wrong. Hmm. None of you has answered his arguments. Uh, In the book of Job, I see Elihu serving as the bridge uh, between the debate of Job and his friends and the appearance of God. He's trying to get Job to acknowledge the majesty of God, and that's what Job finally does once God appears. God's message to Job mirrors many of the themes raised by Elihu, and that's why God doesn't rebuke him. Elihu didn't try to convince Job he was a wicked sinner. He simply tried to get Job to realize God is far greater than Job ever comprehended, and that Job had erred when he said, I'm innocent, but God denies me justice. Another Old Testament question from Randy. I'm wondering where Israel got weapons to fight the Amalekites in the wilderness. Any thoughts? Yeah, I love these practical questions. And the answer is, you know, we're not told, but I do have some suggestions I can offer. Uh, They may have managed to take some with them when they left Egypt, or they got some by stripping them from the Egyptians who were drowned in the Red Sea. In fact, Exodus 14.30 says they saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore following their drowning in the Red Sea. So it's possible they picked up weapons there. It's also possible craftsmen who helped build the tabernacle were able to fashion weapons, though the Amalekite attack took place rather early, which doesn't allow much time for them to do that. And then finally, it's it's possible that they used very crude weapons, hastily fashioned from whatever they had on hand, including shepherd's crooks and wooden clubs. Uh, it would have been a very primitive army, but that's what they used. Hmm. Mary takes us to Luke 15, verses 8 through 10, describing the woman who found her lost coin. The commentaries explain her desire to find it and her joy when she did find it. But somebody explained that the coin that the lady lost was such that she could be divorced from her husband if she hadn't found it. Is this true? Please explain. Yeah, in Luke 15, Jesus is telling a parable or a story, and and we're to focus on the main point of the illustration. In this case, the point is the rejoicing in heaven when the lost sinner repents and is found. Uh, The story never says the coins were worn by the woman on her forehead or that they were part of her dowry or that uh, she could be divorced for them. I've heard teachers, though, attach that kind of importance to these details. But while that might be possible, it's also possible the coins represented just the woman's total savings. Again, though, that's not the point Jesus is trying to make. And to suggest the woman was frantically searching because losing the coin was a cause for divorce, well, it's just not found in the story. Uh, There was debate in Jesus' day as to whether a husband could divorce his wife for any reason or just for adultery. But again, that's not the point of the parable. We're not even told if the woman is married or single or a widow. Now, back in Bible college, I was taught a principle that I found very useful when interpreting parables. Never try to make a parable walk on all fours. You know, trying to pour too much meaning into all of the details of such a story actually obscures the main point Jesus was trying to make. From Lynn, this question, During the wilderness wanderings, how could the Israelites be feasting as they were when celebrating with the golden calf when all they had to eat was manna? Yeah, and, and just like one of the other questions asked, the Bible doesn't provide a direct answer, but I think we can make some assumptions uh, based on Exodus 32.6. It says, The next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings, and afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Uh, While burnt offerings were normally entirely offered on the altar, other offerings, like the fellowship offerings, were only partially offered. The rest was to be eaten by those making the offering. With the large number of flocks and herds Israel had brought with them into the wilderness, uh, my assumption is they killed some of those animals and feasted on them. 
Now, meat wasn't something people ate regularly, so this definitely would have been considered a feast. And in addition, since it's relatively early in the 40-year wilderness wanderings, it's possible they still had grain and herbs and spices that they may have brought with them. Uh, but I assume the feast was primarily a feast involving the meat from the sacrifices. Uh, the last part of the verse also suggests they may have had wine or beer that they'd brought with them or that they'd fermented since arriving at Sinai using wild grapes or date palms or, or grain. It wasn't a feast like we have at Thanksgiving, but after living on manna for a little while, meat and fermented beverages and whatever else they could scrape together was definitely a feast in their eyes. Sadly, it was being done in the worship of an idol. Boy, we've covered a lot of ground. I love these uh, questions, so much variety. And if you'd like to get a question to Charlie, you can email it to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. We've got a great devotional from Charlie. It's coming your way next. You're on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. One of the things that we strive to do here on The Land and the Book is give you a weekly update on current events from the Middle East, the news. But there is this thing called fake news. And Charlie, is is that where we're headed with your devotional today? It is. We're going to talk about fake news in the Bible. Wow, who knew it goes all the way back to Scripture. Before we get to your devotional, though, let's listen to this testimony from a traveler to the Holy Land. Hi, my name's Elizabeth Smith, and this is my experience of my Holy Land trip with Moody Bible Institute. The thing I remember the most is how it changed my entire outlook of how I read Scripture. I know when we read stories in the Bible, we read them one after another in a rather linear fashion. But while I was over there in Israel, I realized that the history of our God is actually layered one upon another. So as I stood beside the Dead Sea and I looked across at what's now Jordan, I realized that those were the very hills that Ruth came across into Israel. And it was amazing to me that the miracle of her travels wasn't so much even that she got to Israel, but that the fact she even survived it in the first place. And I realized, wow, that's the same place that the Dead Sea is now and the cave that David was in, that's right over to my left shoulder. So scripture truly became alive as one story layered upon another. Fake news. Boy, we thought it was something new, but apparently not so, Charlie, huh? That's right. In fact, over the past decade, that term, fake news, has entered the mainstream of politics and journalism and entertainment, uh, helped out in large part by social media. Uh, In a highly polarized world, each side accuses the other of resorting to fake news to push their agenda. Uh, We almost might think that fake news is a modern byproduct of the Internet, but as Solomon wisely wrote in Ecclesiastes 1.10, is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. And Solomon was right on the money. Fake news has been around for decades, for centuries, actually for millennia. In fact, today we're going to explore a bit of fake news that was circulating 2,000 years ago. As Peabody would say to Sherman on the old Rocky and Bullwinkle show, set the Wayback Machine to AD 51 and the place to Thessalonica on the Aegean Sea. And in a flash, we find ourselves back in a bustling city, sitting on the intersection of two major Roman roads and a major port. The Apostle Paul, along with Silas and Timothy, visited Thessalonica during Paul's second missionary journey. But after a short stay, Paul was forced to flee because of severe persecution. 
However, the church he planted survived and continued to thrive. But today, two members of that church are in a home talking nervously among themselves. But uh, Aristobulus, I'm telling you, Paul says we're now in the day of the Lord. That's why we've been experiencing such persecution. Demetrius, I agree that these are difficult times, but how can you be sure this is what Paul meant when he wrote to us about the day of the Lord? Because Paul has written another letter telling us so. Persis told me that Junius heard directly from Urbanus that Andronicus told him he had actually held the letter in his hand and read it. It had to have come from Paul. And besides, Julia, who claims to have the gift of prophecy, says the Spirit has confirmed in her that this time of trouble we're experiencing is indeed the beginning of the end. So what should we do? Demetrius, before we get carried away, let's send someone down to Corinth to ask the Apostle Paul if this is indeed the start of the day of the Lord. There's a boat heading toward Corinth in the morning. I'll arrange for my servant Apelles to be on it. And in a short while... Paul received the worrisome news from Thessalonica. But it was fake news. Paul wasted no time penning a reply to the struggling church. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. One of the main reasons Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians was to correct this false report, this fake news that had added to the church's other struggles. But how does one go about debunking fake news? Paul begins by reminding them of the truth he had taught before. He focuses first on the basic prophetic timeline he had presented during his time at the church. In verse 5, he says rather pointedly, Don't you remember when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? An accurate understanding of God's Word and an accurate grasp of history are two key defenses to help from being taken in by fake news. Paul then reminded the Thessalonians that the ultimate source of fake news is the great deceiver himself. In fact, the mother of all fake news stories is still to come. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. God will permit this still future delusion so people will believe what Paul calls the lie. In addition to a firm grasp of God's Word and an accurate grasp of history, Paul ends this chapter with two additional resources to help guard us from fake news. Firm footing through dependence on God and the solid teaching of God's Word. Paul reminded them of the sanctifying work of the Spirit that brought them to salvation and that will continue to uphold them. And he challenged them to stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Focus on your faith and on the facts. Well, it's time to jump back in the Wayback Machine and head home. And as we do, what can we bring back with us to an always-on internet age that threatens to overwhelm us with so much information that we struggle to separate reality from fantasy and fake news. Let me suggest two basic truths that can help. First, recognize the reality of fake news. It doesn't matter if politically you're on the right or the left. The truth is that there's fake news on both sides. Confirmation bias, as it's called, is the tendency to uncritically believe news that matches previously existing beliefs. 
Don't accept something as true simply because you agree with the point being made. Do your homework and make sure the facts are true and that the message aligns with God's Word. After leaving Thessalonica on his second missionary journey, Paul visited the city of Berea. Luke provides a tiny detail about the Bereans that can help us avoid being taken in by fake news. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. They used God's word as their yardstick for truth, even when evaluating what Paul himself was saying. Second, recognize that when it comes to fake news, the ultimate source is Satan. In Revelation 12:9, he's called the ancient serpent, the devil or Satan, who deceives the whole world. And in 2 Thessalonians 2.10, Paul says Satan's goal is to deceive those who are perishing. Paul's warning to the Thessalonians is his warning to us as well. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. The internet might provide 24-7 access online, but it didn't create fake news. Fake news has been around from the very beginning. And your goal is to make sure Satan doesn't use your own confirmation bias to allow you to be taken in. Focus on reading and understanding God's Word. Do your own research to check out any so-called historical facts to make sure they're true. Depend on God's Spirit to provide discernment, and then compare the accuracy of news sources using the yardstick of God's Word. Fake news might be all around us, but so is the one who told us He is the way, the truth, and the life. You know, Charlie, I can imagine there are a number of listeners saying, how can I know that's true? You know, this claim that Jesus is the exclusive way to heaven in our culture, that is a a severely contested claim. It is. And again, I go back to the Word of God. Uh, At some point, people have to say, God wrote His Word to convey His truth to us. Uh, What does His Word say? And when you read the Word, it's not just one passage. It's over and over again where God helps us understand who Jesus is, what His claims were, why they were valid and why we need to place our trust in them. All right, for somebody who said, I've done the research, I've done the homework you're talking about here, Charlie, and I've reached the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God, that I'm messed up, I'm a sinner, what do I do now? Uh, That's the easy part now. It's a matter of just talking to God. Prayer is really just talking to God, and they have to pray something like this, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've violated your law. I know I'm deserving of your wrath, and I know your Son came here to die to pay the penalty for my sin. And so right now, Lord, I'm turning from my my ways, my, my evil. I want to put my trust in Jesus and what he did for me. Forgive me of my sins because of what your son did for me. And I pray it in his name. Amen. Well, that's a great prayer. And if you did pray that prayer, you'd like to pray that prayer, do so now. And then send us an email to let us know that you did. Connect with us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Our time is gone for today, but we're back next week, Lord willing, here on The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.